This episode and all of our South by Southwest coverage is brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. For his new film, Olympic Dreams, filmmaker Jeremy Tyker was granted unprecedented access to one of the most exclusive residences in the world. This is a location so rare that it's only available once every four years, a place where pheromones course through the veins of some of the most beautiful and physically talented people alive, the Olympic Village. Tyker and his partner Alexi Pappas were provided a grant, and perhaps equally valuable, permission to shoot anywhere they wished at 2018's Winter Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. Pappas, an Olympic track star in her own right, stars in the film with the always hilarious Nick Kroll. The two are the only actual actors in the film, playing a young cross-country skier and a volunteer doctor that fall in love over the course of the Winter Games. Everyone else who appears in the film is either a competing Olympian or unknowing passerby. For this reason, it was crucial the production had the smallest footprint it could possibly get away with. The opportunity wouldn't be without its challenges, however. Namely, Tyker would be shooting an entire narrative film in a chaotic foreign location entirely by himself. I sat down with Tyker and Pappas to discuss the most important parts of one-man crewing, what gear to bring along, how to make things easier for yourself in pre-production, and, at the end of the day, why it may be a better idea to bring at least one other person along to help. Enjoy. All right. Hey, everybody. This is John Fusco, and I'm here with two filmmakers of Olympic Dreams. I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves so that the audience can get familiar with your own voices. My name is Alexi Pappas, and I play Penelope in the movie Olympic Dreams. My name is Jeremy Teicher, and I directed, shot, and recorded location sound for Olympic Dreams. One man crewed it. Alexi, I'm going to start off with you um, because I know you got to get out of here pretty soon. I just wanted to know a little bit more about uh, your journey from college to the Olympics and then back to filmmaking. Yeah, so I went to school in New Hampshire at Dartmouth and met Jeremy there. And at Dartmouth, my interests were running and poetry. And Jeremy, you know, really showed me, because the my favorite part about sports, even though running seems individual, has always been the team. And I loved poetry, loved, like, words and economy of words, but it found that poetry was very a singular, very, you know, didn't have that team. And then I met Jeremy and he kind of pulled me in that film direction and showed me how I can use that, you know, fascination with words and in in a film environment and create that team that I've always loved. And so I started working with Jeremy on the films at Dartmouth and then continued to work with him while chasing my own Olympic dream. So I moved to Eugene, Oregon and joined an Olympic training group there, made it to Rio 2016. And right around that same time that I competed in my first Olympics, we premiered our movie Track Town together. And so the whole time I've I've always balanced both both pursuits and, and with Olympic dreams, uh, it has truly been a dream because we've been able to like make a film at the next level like I feel that we're growing as artists just like I'm growing as an athlete um, but certainly uh, you know always learning and, and making like cooler and cooler stuff would you say that uh, you know your Olympic uh, endeavors and your filmmaking endeavors have any parallels in a sort? Like they're both pretty intense feats, totally. I think, in their own rights. Yeah, and you know the the thing that I 
I like to think about is that some people think, you know, you're a gifted runner or you're a gifted artist. And I think you can be gifted, but you also have to take both on as like a discipline and something you can learn and become better at. And my coach, actually my Olympic coach, used to tell me this 30-30-30 rule, which is like you to know that you're like improving and this isn't running but I think it applies to the filmmaking as well you should feel good 33% of the time okay 33% of the time and kind of crappy 33% of the time and I guess you're asleep for the last 1% um but I think what he meant by that is if you feel too good all the time you're not pushing yourself athletically probably as a filmmaker too if you feel too crappy all the time you're fatiguing as an athlete or maybe the filmmaking you know you're you're either you know somehow you're you're not going to progress in that ratio and I feel like that's been my mo with both of these things where I'm like I know it's going to be hard I know there's going to be good moments and bad ones and hard days and easier days but as long as I like I'm basically on that 30 30 30 rule I know that I'm growing in both and then you know so much of this seems like it comes from your own personal experiences in the Olympics uh are those stories that we're hearing you tell your character tell in the film are those things that actually happen to you in real life you know like not being able to go to prom or you know because you're training so it's a great question because you know I always like to think about it as like Penelope could not have written Olympic dreams so like I'm certainly an Alexi who's very like self-aware and able to look down at the world and put together more of like a patchwork quilt of my observations and experiences but her experiences are all very familiar to me so the experience of feeling like I've worked my whole life for something and now and I was never supposed to think past it you know that's entirely it's every Olympian's mindset because if you thought past it you probably wouldn't get to the Olympics Um, And in terms of the actual storyline, the Ezra and Penelope relationship or friendship that they form um, is is based on an experience I had in Rio where um, there are these real volunteer doctors at the Olympics for the athletes to get a mouth guard, see an eye doctor. And for some athletes, it's like a tremendous resource to them if they don't necessarily have access to that. But that's the other So I met a doctor in uh, Rio and befriended him, met him at the gym, and just saw him like several, you know, come multiple times a day. And, and we struck up a friendship. Uh, he definitely asked, you know, if we could hang out more. And, and I was focused on my competition. And we didn't hang out as Ezra and Penelope did. But it's something where I was like, this could happen. All right. Now, Jeremy. Let's talk shop. Let's talk shop. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I guess the first question I would have to ask you is, uh, um, how did you get this kind of access into the Olympic village? I know that she's, you know, a a former Olympian, but, uh, I also saw that you had a grant from the Olympic, uh, committee. Yeah, so the Olympics has this new thing called the Artist in Residence Project, I think it's called Art at the Olympics, where they invite Olympians who are artists to go to Olympic games where they're not competing and like do art projects. Oh, interesting. So there's some of them are like more performance art or so, so, so the president of the Olympics happened to see Tracktown, our previous film on an airplane and side note, airlines seem to be one of the few places where like normal people watch feature films. Like <laughs> yeah, totally. a lot of people don't watch features anymore. They'll rather binge like four episodes of a show, but on airplanes, people will sit and watch indie films. Pretty cool. Sidebar <laughs> over. Anyway, they, he saw this and, and reached out to Alexi. And so it started as it was meant to be a short film project. And just when we got there, kind of had it in our mind, like, you know, if I'm there with the gear, 
and, and like we could we can do this yeah and uh, it just grew kind of from there but you know it, it started mainly because like he liked our previous film and because they trusted alexi as, a, as an olympian like she's in the family like you, you couldn't just go do this you know and was there anywhere that was like off limits or did you have sort of we had an unprecedented carte blanche um to pretty much go anywhere and do anything uh, as long as, you know, we couldn't go on fields of play during active games. <laughs> uh, but that was pretty much it. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, we did have restrictions in terms of, like, we knew it was going to be Alexi, me, and then we, we got a permission for a third actor. So I knew, like, so we had our two, Nick, Alexi, and me. So, like, I'm going to have to one-man ban this thing. Um, and then we, we also pulled in athletes like I, we would cast them off the street, pretty you know, off the dining hall, off the athlete lounge, and pull them in the film. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was gonna ask you a little bit more about how your approach was for those actors that you just get, I guess, in the dining hall. Right. Like you didn't have any connection with them beforehand. Maybe did Ale- did Alexi know any of them? No, I mean Gus Kenworthy, like a you know great high-profile athlete. We did reach out to his team in advance and like coordinate his schedule, but for the most part, like. Most athletes at the Olympics are not, like, famous, high-profile people. Sure. Like, so, yeah, you know, Alexi would kind of be the one to approach because athletes kind of get inundated with requests and stuff. So she would walk up to people who maybe she could sense they weren't, like, competing imminently. Although some who <laughs> were decided they wanted to be in our movie anyway, and she would kind of introduce. Some of them knew who Nick Kroll was, and so that was easy. Uh, and she kind of explained the project, and they trusted her because she was like a fellow athlete. How long did you have for like setups with those athletes? Would they just come on and be we cool would, with hanging out for two hours? Oh no, or? we would usually be done with an athlete within thirty to forty-five minutes. Wow. Like, uh, like yeah, yeah. We we tried to plan that. Did you ever run into any trouble um, on the opposite end, or like how many people knew Nick? Did you did you want to have sort of a low profile? Was it? Because it felt sort of like a hybrid documentary fiction in a sense right. where maybe it would have been a fun to kind of trick people into thinking that Nick was actually like a real dentist or something. Oh, we like definitely that. did. Yeah. Like, you know, because people walking around certain areas of the village, it's like a known media area. So you're allowed to be shooting anything because, like, it, you know, we were able to go into certain kind of more pro- off limits areas that no media was allowed. But, you know, seeing guy walking around carrying a camera rig was a very common sight so it wasn't oh, like we were totally uh, drawing attention sometimes nick would get like recognized mid-take and we'd have to stop yeah. um, we we did do some plants where like nick was asking for directions or whatever and that i would toss on the long lens and like you know capture it that way so people would not know that they were in a movie until after we cut and we would like tell them make sure everything was cool okay. even though technically we didn't have to do that because they were in an open media zone oh interesting um yeah like we would never film people without them knowing um after the fact yeah <laughs> uh, and, you know and so uh yeah so sometimes we did that and honestly like a lot of times people would just not again like if i had the longer lens on they would just assume you know, they would never have thought, oh, these guys are like Making, shooting a narrative yeah, exactly. feature. Like, no, yeah. never. So then let's talk about like the gear that you use. What kind of, you were truly one man crewing it. So what was yes. your camera? What was your lens setup? Did you bring any lights with you? What kind of, how are you, how are you doing it all? <laughs> yeah, I, I spoke with some documentary filmmakers and, and this one uh, filmmaker, she told me about this one, you know, she, one woman banded it. 
uh, on a doc she did. So I, I was like really draw, you know, I, I look to doc filmmaking for my inspiration. And like, for example, she told me, bring a monopod, not a tripod. And that was like a lifesaver because like tripods are heavy. Cine tripods are like fucking very unwieldy. So yeah. yeah um, but at the same time, I needed to have a, a different level of like audio equipment. So anyway, here's what I had. I used a Panasonic EVA-1, okay. the EVA-1. It's kind of like a prosumer Vericam, um, but you know, it's I considered DSLR, but but I needed XLR inputs. Um, so it was the the EVA-1. I had three zoom lenses, like fast uh, Sigma zooms, but like all f1.8s. So. That was nice, uh, and then a sound devices audio recorder, oh, okay. like a full-blown like sound guy fucking yeah. situation that would get slung over my shoulder, and we we hardwired it so it was jam sync. So anytime I hit record, it would start sync sound. Oh, cool! I had three lavs and a, an on-camera mounted shotgun, um, and like the thing was, we just got the absolute best equipment on the market because I was like. The, the you know we're not hiring people so like let's just get the best stuff right. um, often indie films will kind of like I've done this you know you, you get the, the second most expensive lobs instead of this the best like this was like let's just try to do the best because I'm one person yeah. and I feel like that was like a like a viable strategy because like ask my post sound designer Nathan Rule he will tell you that sound was clean so yeah, it was... Uh, In a tough atmosphere yeah. to get clean sound, too. I yes. Imagine. I mean, we embraced the uh, the chaos. The that, that was our, our mantra, but it's, like, honestly, like, really clean <laughs> between the lobs <laughs> and the uh, the shotgun that we use. I can't remember the name, but it was a kind that, like, it records two tracks at once, like, one with auto noise reduction built in. I don't know. It was, it was, yeah, so it was like three zooms and I had a back, like a big Manfrotto backpack mm-hmm. where I'd keep batteries, um, the, the lens I wasn't using, a set of ND filters, because mm-hmm. um, like, especially with the bright snow, I needed NDs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had these, li- I forgot the name of the brand, but there are these LED lights with magnets on the back. So you can like slap them up on a wall. Okay. Um, they're not called light panels, but like same idea, just like these small LEDs that I, I didn't really end up using that much. Well, it's, I mean, that's a pretty cool like technique. I mean, with F1.8, you know, you don't need lights. So what was your pre-production like planning for all this stuff, you know? Like you're running around, you know it's going to be just you out there. Like how do you make it easy for yourself in pre-production yes. aside from, you know, getting the right gear? I mean, yeah, so planning prepo as as much as you can will always make your life easier. So yes, on the gear front, like a month ahead of time, I actually brought in my post sound designer to help me design. I was like, you're going to have to clean up whatever mess I make. That's cool. Like what will be best for you? And he was involved. So uh, I did also consult with like I, I, my colorist too, like, you know, just making sure I was shooting in the correct, like, uh, like had the right LUT, you know, look up to like uh, all that stuff locked in in advance and then I actually rented the gear a day early and like just practiced practiced the the hand motions practiced taking the camera out of the backpack and putting it back in like little things you don't think of but you don't want to be scrambling to be taking your camera out and like which pocket do I want to put my lenses in these are very specific things like where do what zipper do I want to keep my batteries in like figure that shit out and it will save you time so so that's the gear front uh, and then, you know, we had a, a map of the village and all the locations. I had a spreadsheet with all the scenes, uh, and I tried to, like, kind of pick locations I thought would be cool and also group things by 
like proximity and then obviously everything went up in the air but like once we got there but like I knew that spreadsheet backwards and forwards like we would see oh hey that's a cool location like let's shoot something there and like I could like picture the Excel spreadsheet changing in my mind and then like that home I would go home and, and update it well you couldn't scout at all obviously because it was right. shot in South Korea so how, how did you manage you just had like a, a map that you would be like yeah, oh okay, yeah this looks cool venue maps list of venue so so I got as much info as I could yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> what about in the screenwriting process um you know, with Nick and Alexi, did you guys leave a lot open sort of to what would you find in the moment? Or was it mostly like, was the dialogue all there beforehand? What was what was that process like? I, so this, the dialogue was heavily improvised. I think like most uh, improvised films, we had like a, I like to have a kind of extensive like beat sheet pretty much, like okay. scene, pl- like with... Or so you like, this is the scene where they have this argument and, and here are the key beats in the scene that we need to hit, right? So, and then like as it, so we had that and then um, I spent a, like a fair amount of time talking with Alexi and Nick individually about their characters. So just everyone was really kind of locked in on like, what's this person's mindset going into page one? Like, why are they here? What do they want? Why aren't they getting it? Like basic like film like screenwriting 101 exercises sure. that you kind of like forget about because you're like oh I, I but like I just, just return to the basics of like let's know like what do you want why can't you get it right now like and just having that locked in so then we did kind of when we were in the moment and they started playing together in front of like uh, you know we would ad- adapt like the plot line but we did have those characters like really dialed in going into it, which I recommend for anyone who, who wants to do improvised script, which I think is like great for an indie filmmaker to do, like mm-hmm. especially with, with low budgets and stuff. But just like have be totally flexible, but but give yourself a safe play like a sandbox. Yeah. And that sandbox is like your characters. Cause like what would they do? What would they not do? Like know that. Yeah. So it seems like you were, you know, more than just manning all of the gear and everything you also had a pretty big like directorial uh presence in acting and sort of like keeping people on your your actors on track too i mean yeah as a director when you're doing a film with improvised dialogue i feel like like hopefully you're in a situation where you really trust your actors where they know what their characters would or wouldn't say in a situation but then you also yeah your job is to like know what what you what beats you need in your story and make sure that you're achieving those even if it's in a way that that wasn't expected mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you still need to keep that like three act structure in the back of your brain yeah do you have any more tips for just like surviving in the sense of like being having to carry all this gear around with you like all day yeah uh, <laughs> um <laughs> Luckily, in this particular situation, I made friends with the Team USA bobsled uh, chiropractor. There you go. <laughs> and he fixed me up. But I still have back things because of this project today. So I cannot, in good faith, recommend doing exactly what I did. Uh, it was pretty extreme, but... Uh, That's a recommendation in itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, just uh, Nick and Alexi helped carry the stuff, but I honestly wanted them more focused on it. If I could have anything I wanted, I would say, like, a one-man band is not fully necessary. I would have had one other person. Yeah. Like, but that's all. I would not have wanted it bigger than that. And even now, I mean, with this project, I'm glad it was just the three of us, but I, I you know, like, I could have used one person to at least carry the sound bag. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that would have been nice. And, like, monitor those levels. I mean, it sounds like you got clean audio. For but... the most part, yeah. Um, 
What was the actual experience like just being at the Olympics? I mean, it was fucking crazy. <laughs> like, you, uh, I, I, so Alexi, my, my partner, competed in the Rio Olympics, and I got to visit her in the athlete village there, walking around, like, you know, they don't even let you bring a camera in unless mm-hmm. you're, like, all registered. And she's like, it would be cool to make a film here, I thought. It's like, that'll obviously never happen. And then now it did. So that was, like, surreal. But then also... You know, like once Alexi, Nick, and I were in the flow, and I kind of had my routine down with the gear, it honestly just felt kind of like this full circle thing of like being a teenager with your friends, like in high school, shooting something on a handy cam. Like, it's just us. And, and I feel like that's what every filmmaker strives for, no matter how big your set gets, mm-hmm. um, hmm. is to like ultimately kind of have that feeling where it's just like you and the actors. Because that's your job at the end of the day, is like get those performances, you know? And yeah. you, you met Alexi in undergrad. We met in undergrad. And you've been making movies together ever since. Yeah, yeah. We uh, She started help like, um, I'm two years older, so she kind of, like, her first foray into film was, like, helping me with my thesis. <laughs> and then uh, she started getting into writing, and I would edit her screenplays. And, uh, yeah, we can go in from there. Great. Well, I guess I'll just uh, wrap up here by asking, you know, a question that I, I ask all my guests on the show. And uh, that is, if you had any uh, golden piece of advice for emerging filmmakers, what would it be? Yes. What I wish that I was more aware of yes. in undergrad and stuff. And, and it's, if, if any undergrad kid is listening to this, then you are already following the advice that I'm, that I'm about to give, which is like, I would have loved to have plugged myself into the indie film community earlier. And like, and it's pretty easy. You just like start following like no film school, IndieWire, filmmakers you like on social media. Go to film festivals, yep. and 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 then like make and submit work. Use those deadlines. Like, forget your finals. I mean, do what you got to do. But like film submission deadlines. Oh my god, amazing. Like, I wish that I. I remember that I wrote this, started writing this screenplay when my freshman year of college about like this kid who just gets to college and the screenwriting professor who I won't name was like, oh, every college kid writes a script about a kid coming to college. And now I'll be like, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. I wish I had shot that. Totally. Like, you have to make movies that only you can make, especially within this crowded, mar- you know, like what, like what makes you unique? So obviously with Alexi, like I have this into this like Olympic athlete world. I'm not an athlete, but it's like, what are movies only you can make? And if you're like a college freshman going to parties, like I could not make that movie now. Like, yeah. <laughs> so just like shoot what you have access to, use those festival submission deadlines as true deadlines and, and, and plug yourself into this community. It's here. Yeah, I mean, that was what struck me most about watching your film. And I think just, like, the whole conceit of the film in general is that this is a film that couldn't have been made by anyone else and, like, probably never will have been made by anyone else. The Olympics has made it clear that even though they love this this movie, but it's doubtful that anyone will have the level of access that that we did. I mean, unless another Olympian filmmaker comes along. Who knows? (laughs) Well, great. Thanks, Jeremy. And, you. uh, you know, maybe the next movie... What 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 will that what does that look like the next movie? Yes, is it going to be another no, track movie? No, or? actually, I mean you have to have that feeling and that like of being afraid when you start to write your new screenplay of like oh I don't know if I could do this. Yeah. So my new movie is it's inspired by a true story. Like I love true things, um, and it's like a period piece about this. It's set in the 1970s about this guy who uh, a business person who fled Castro's Cuba. 
became a, a successful businessman and ended up doing some stuff with the CIA that uh, he tried to do good and it ruined his life. And so it's, but it's, you know, I've never done anything like that before, so. Great. Well, got to do what scares you. Yes. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Give us a rating. Let us know what you think. And be sure to tune in every Monday for a new interview podcast. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. You can follow No Film School at No Film School. And be sure to check out the site for the latest in filmmaking news. Until next week.